The wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you, as we do week by week, to be here with us this morning in this place. And we know that you have kept your promise and are here. May my words now be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I don't think that it's ever happened to me, and in the age of credit cards, it's probably likely to happen less often, but it's the kind of thing that happens all the time on sitcoms. A boy takes a girl out to dinner and realizes he's not going to have enough money to pay. The one that jumps into my mind first, I think, is from an episode of Family Ties. Uh, I'm thinking of Skippy, the Keaton's nerdy neighbor who's in love with Mallory. You all with me? (laughs) Finally getting a chance to take her to that Italian restaurant that they're always going to on that show. You know how the plot goes, right? It's the same every time. The guy realizes he doesn't have enough money. He's either forgotten his wallet altogether and doesn't have any money at all, or he takes a look at the prices on the menu and realizes he doesn't have enough. And since it's the 80s, you know, he totally overreacts. He opens his eyes real wide. He gets all sweaty. He starts shaking his head back and forth. And so his big hairdo starts flopping back and forth. And finally, when he calms down a bit, he starts talking about how, well, you know, he's not really hungry. Maybe he'll just have some water. And the girl, of course, the girl casually announces that she's thinking about appetizers and drinks and dessert. And the stress level jacks up and jacks up until finally something happens. Either Skippy calls Michael J. Fox and gets him to bring more money and sneak it through the restroom window or something, or or he spills marinara sauce on himself in order to get out of the date early. Something happens. Hijinks. Hilarious hijinks all around. And that feeling of panic... Being in a restaurant without the money you need to pay came to mind as I thought about this parable of the wedding feast that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 22. The king, Jesus says, plans to throw a banquet, a wedding banquet for his son. He sends out the invitations to the best and brightest, all the people you would think would be invited to such a feast. In other words, not Skippy from Family Ties. (laughs) Uh, But when he sends his servants out to pick up the people and bring them to the feast, they say that they don't want to come. He tells them how great the party is going to be. But Jesus says that they make light of it. They go on about their business. They even mistreat and kill some of the servants. Talk about not wanting to go to a party. But the king decides he wants to have a full house at his wedding feast, so he tells his servants to go into the streets and bring in whomever they can find. This is so far great news for us. More than just being a cautionary tale about people who had the opportunity to accept the message of Jesus but didn't, the story is actually about that next group of people, the ones who do take advantage of that opportunity and how exactly That's going to work. Because when the king 
broadens out the invitation, we are specifically told that both good and bad people are welcomed into the feast. Again, good news for us. This is the gospel, right? The good news. The king has a feast. He has made everything ready and you are invited. Isaiah sort of gives a poetic image of this feast in chapter 25 of his prophecy when he says that the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. This, we can imagine, will be a great meal. And everything has been made ready. The king says, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Just come. You don't have to bring anything to this party. It's almost too good to be true. And as we'll see in a second, it seems like it's going to literally be too good to be true. The king says, just go into the street. Bring in whoever you can find, good, bad, everyone. And that's what the gospel is supposed to be all about, right? Jesus, remember, like he has been for the last few weeks, is telling these parables in the temple during the last week of his life. And like the parable of the wicked tenants last week, This story is, on one level, about the Jews, God's chosen people, the invited wedding guests who are in the process of rejecting the Messiah that their God has sent. These are the people for whom this feast was originally prepared, but they're turning down the invitation. And in response, the king throws open the invitation to anyone, even people literally dragged in off the street. Isaiah previews that specifically, right? The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. Everyone is invited. But then there's that scary turn. This story gets scary quick. We keep reading and we start to wonder, is this the kind of place where when you look at the menu you realize you don't belong here. You didn't bring enough money to pay for this dinner. Jesus continues. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot. Throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is one of those rough weeks where Jacob then says, the gospel of the Lord. And we say, praise to you, Lord Christ. What is going on here? How are we to interpret a story like this? Has what seemed like such good news... The stragglers, the Gentiles, the the people who wouldn't ordinarily get invited to parties like this, even people like us, you and me, Skippy from Family Ties, people like us have been welcomed into this wedding feast thrown by the king. Has this good news now curdled into bad news? Has your place at this party become insecure? Insecure? 
Do you need to clean yourself up in order to be allowed to stay? Might at any moment the king show up and say, hey, wait a minute. I don't want that guy in my party. Get him out of here. But before we get carried away with what I will say is a faulty interpretation of this parable, I want to look back at that heavenly feast for which Isaiah is giving us a preview. What can it tell us about getting in? And what can it tell us about staying in? Here are just some selections from that first part of Isaiah 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have been a refuge to the poor, a refuge to the needy in their distress, a shelter from the rainstorm and a shade from the heat. When the blast of the ruthless was like a winter rainstorm, the noise of aliens like heat in a dry place, you subdued the heat. With the shade of clouds, the song of the ruthless was stilled. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines of rich food filled with marrow of well-aged wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples. The sheet that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces. And the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. What kind of God is Isaiah describing here? One that will evaluate you after welcoming you to his feast and if he finds something wrong with you, something not quite right, will cast you out? I don't think so. This is a God who is sheltering, who is caring, who is wiping tears away, who is swallowing up death forever. This is a God who is for you. And we can use passages like this, this prophecy of Isaiah 25 to help us understand scary and difficult passages like this parable, the behavior of the king at the end of this story. At our fall retreat last week, Zach Hicks used Romans 3.28 as a kind of filter for determining what is the gospel and what isn't, what is good news and what isn't. And I think we can use it here too to determine what is a good interpretation of this story and what isn't. Romans 3.28 reads simply, as St. Paul writes, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. In other words, we must, in order for the biblical witness about God to be consistent, we must get in and stay in the feast of the king, be justified apart from works. Apart from things that we do, we must get in and stay in on account of what Jesus has done for us. So with that filter in mind, listen to the scary part of the story again. But when the king came in to see the guests, 
he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot. Throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think a quick clue to help us decode what's going on here is in the king's reaction to this man without a wedding robe. He doesn't say, how dare you try to get in here like that, does he? Now, I, I don't want to overplay the importance of Jesus' individual word choices here. I don't think the interpretation of the parable hangs on your specific interpretation of this phrase. But I do think it's kind of a helpful shorthand for the sermon this morning. So notice the king seems more incredulous than angry, right? It's not, how dare you come in here dressed like that. It's more like, my friend, how did you get in here? What has happened In other words, it's not about so much what this wedding guest did or didn't do. It's not about his actions or his moral quality. It's literally about how he is clothed. It's about what he's wearing, or to put it exactly right, and to shine a light on what this parable is really about. It's about who he's wearing. This parable of Jesus It's not a story about needing to be dressed to impress in the kingdom of heaven. It's not about qualifying. It's not about being sure to show up to that Italian restaurant and family ties with a wallet full of money. It's not about getting yourself cleaned up once Jesus calls you so that you can stay in his group of friends. This is a story about needing to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. As St. Paul puts it in Galatians, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are in Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. In John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus says famously, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's the significance of the wedding robe. No one gets into the banquet not clothed with Christ. Everyone who gets in, and remember, Jesus specifically says that the bad and the good are pulled into this party off the street. Everyone who gets in, gets in by the blood of Christ. We get in by the blood, we stay in by the blood. And this one guy, he's not wearing a robe. Now, I don't want you to worry about why. Our minds can so easily get distracted about the narrative details of the story. How was he supposed to get a robe? Were they offering him robes and he refused? Uh, What is he wearing anyway? The ins and outs of the theoretical plot here are utterly unimportant. Only one thing is important. This man is not in a robe. He's not covered by the blood of Christ. And so he is bound, hand and foot, thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now this should be sobering to us, even though it is not a reason to fear. There is an outer darkness. There is a place outside 
God's feast. There is weeping and gnashing of teeth, but that place is not for those who somehow don't qualify to get in or stay in the party. It's not for you if you put your faith in Christ and thereby clothe yourself with him. This outer darkness, this weeping and gnashing of teeth is for those who refuse to put on Christ. You don't need to be afraid that you'll turn around to find the king about to kick you out of his party. You are in Christ. You are wearing Christ. But the outer darkness does exist. There is eternity apart from God and hell. Let us never forget that. And let us allow concern for our fellow man to kindle our evangelistic efforts. Your friends, your co-workers, your family, if they don't know Jesus, they are lost. There is a heavenly banquet fully prepared. They are invited, welcome, but there is only one way in. When Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, he meant nothing less than just that. He is generous enough to welcome everyone in, but he is the only way that anyone can be at peace with God. So, how do we sinners, you and me, stay in the wedding feast of the king? How do we, with our empty wallets, pay for that Italian dinner with Mallory Keaton? Well, I'll tell you what we do not do. We don't scramble around like Skippy, calling Michael J. Fox to bring us more money or spilling marinara sauce on ourselves to get out the door. We don't try to find proper attire to put on. We don't try to do any set of good works that might eventually qualify us. Remember, we are justified by faith apart from works. So we, we sinners, simply rely on, we place our faith in and clothe and cover ourselves with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, who has paid the price for us. Now, if you want to say this morning, yes, that is where I put my faith, the one and only Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, I invite you here in just like 15 seconds to stand and say the creed with us. Proclaim your belief, maybe for the first time, and take your rest at the feast of the king. Or rehearse your belief again, many times over, remembering that the great table at which you will now feast is open to you. You might have noticed that my sermons often end with a reference to the creed and encouragements to say it with us. Well, it's placed here immediately after the readings and the sermon for a reason. Because if, anything, if everything is working right, you'll have just heard through the scriptures and through the sermon that you are a great sinner, but that Jesus is a greater savior. That by rights, you should be cast into the outer darkness. But in him, you will feast for eternity with the king. And now, having heard that good news... It only makes sense to stand up and say, Amen, I believe. So remember, as you confess your faith, you are invited to this feast to come before the presence of the King 
on account of the generosity of his invitation. And you are welcome to stay at this wedding feast of the king for all eternity on account of the finished work of his son. Jesus lived, Jesus died, and Jesus was resurrected for you. Thanks be to God. Amen.